Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. Before we get started with my guest today, I want to be sure that you all know about the National Association of, or National Council of Investigative and Security Services. Hit the Hill in annual meeting. It's going to start um, Monday, March 19th, arriving the 18th, of course, on Sunday. But the, it actually starts Monday, March 19th and goes through Wednesday, March 21st. There'll be speakers such as Terry Kilborn. For those of you who are private investigators, you know he was the former owner of Tracers Information Services. We have Tim, Tim Dimhoff, who is the uh, SACS Consulting and Investigative Services. He's going to talk about the escalating trends of aggression and violence, which I think we're all experiencing right now. And, of course, Cynthia Hetherington, and I know all of you that are private investigators know about Cynthia Hetherington, and she's going to be talking about her great Internet open source and database uh, investigations. So Arlington, Virginia, uh, deadline for reservations is tomorrow, so get your reservations in if you're planning on going because that's your deadline. Okay. Oh, and by the way, I'm so excited. The every other year, the John J. Duffy Memorial Achievement Award is awarded to someone that is not in the private investigation security profession. This year, the recipients will be the two officers, the two state capital officers, Crystal Greiner and David Bailey, who are the ones that saved uh, Majority Whip House Majority Whip Steve Scalise's life at the ballpark the day they were practicing for their ball ball game. So it's going to be an exciting time. That's going to be a capital luncheon. Um, so please sign up, be there. Uh, you won't you won't be sorry. At any rate, here we go. I want to introduce my guest, Steve Mason. Hi, Steve. Hi, Francie. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited to, to have Steve on the show today because we worked together on a case a few months ago, and um, even though it didn't get the result we anticipated, um, Steve did a great job on it. So, uh, Steve, you're a licensed investigator in Arizona. Correct. We're located in Gilbert, Arizona. Gilbert, Arizona. And are you, uh, yeah, near, to, near to Phoenix. And are you licensed anyplace else, or is it just uh, state of Arizona? Just Arizona. Yeah. And so tell us how, you know, what's your path? How did you get to become a licensed private investigator? Sure. Well, I started my career in law enforcement um, about 20 years ago. And I started with the state of Illinois as a police officer and kind of worked my way up as an investigator before joining the United States Marshal Service. Um, While at the Marshal Service, I held many different positions and In some of those positions, I was able to work with private investigators, specifically in the fugitive arena, and Mm -hmm. I always had good experiences with them. And when I worked with them, I always kind of went back to my childhood. Um, I grew up right outside of 
the city of Chicago. And I can remember growing up as a kid, there was a licensed private investigator that lived in our block. Really? And a lot of, a lot of times I would come home late at night from sports practices and I would see his light on in the basement and I'd kind of peek in his window and see what was going on. And I'd see him hunched over a desk. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, this is like Hollywood and, you know, <laughs> what a great job that would be. And fast forward, I made the leap in the private investigation. That's really fascinating because, you know, I didn't even know private investigators existed until I met one and when I was an adult. So <laughs> to, to know of one in your neighborhood is, is kind of special, actually. Oh, yeah, it was, it was amazing. So you did a lot uh, looking at your bio. You worked on uh, the attacks from September 11th. Correct. And the Marshall's top 15 most wanted cases. What cases were like what? Um, we worked on various cases over my career. Um, a lot of times they would be leads that were sent from other districts to go interview witnesses in the case, uh, to execute search warrants. A couple times we would have cellular tracking orders that we would pick up in our federal jurisdiction and go out and do the phone tracking and, you know, eventually make the arrests. So we've got mm. to work on, you know, various parts of the cases. And you did a lot of fugitive tracking and interrogation? Yeah, I primarily spent the first half of my career doing fugitives. And then I, as I kind of came up with the Marshal Service and got promoted, I eventually got assigned over to Philadelphia Homicide Unit and then started working homicide cases for the second half of my career. You know, I think uh, a lot of people might have questions about how the U.S. Marshal Service uh, differs from other agencies. What, is, what does Marshal Service do? So the Marshal Service has a lot of the same duties as the other federal agencies. You know, they investigate various types of federal crimes. But what kind of separates the Marshal Service from the rest of the federal law enforcement community is the Marshal Service has the unique authority to execute and enforce any law, whether it's local, state, or federal, Hmm. Um, because by statute, the Marshal Service actually has the arrest, the same arrest power as the local sheriff. So a lot of times the Marshal Service will get involved with local city agencies and bring federal resources to those agencies to help investigate violent crime, um, go after some of their most wanted fugitives. So hmm. they kind of do a married, you know, a bunch of different things. Uh, they also execute the witness protection program, which is kind of a, unique program all in of itself. They do a lot right. of protection missions and production of federal prisoners as well. And do you work closely with the local marshal's offices? I'm sorry. Or is that a separate, the local marshal's offices, do you work with them or is that a, that completely separate? So the marshal service is broken up by federal judicial districts. So there's 94 federal judicial districts, and there's a marshal appointed to each judicial district. Mm. And then underneath that marshal is deputy U.S. marshals. And, of course, we had the various um, headquarters programs that worked alongside the local district offices, which is what I was a part of. And, and then how does that, um, does that get then connected to state marshals' offices? Um, the U- well, I haven't worked the U- with any. We don't have. I haven't had any state marshal offices in okay. jurisdictions that I worked in. 
Yeah. So I guess I'm not familiar with what they would do. Okay. All right. Well, you know, that's really fascinating. I I never uh, really understood the difference between a lot of the federal agencies because it seemed like everybody did the same thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, unfortunately, there is a lot of overlap, which, you know, I always thought uh, certain resources could have been utilized a little bit better because there was so much overlap and uh, a lot of the missions were going after some of the same targets. Um, but it also made for great collaboration because, you know, you start working on a case involving a certain criminal organization and long, long after you started, you find out that the FBI, maybe the IRS were also involved. So um, usually the investigations would join at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and now I understand you're also, you also train federal law enforcement as an adjunct yeah, instructor? What, correct. One of my duties when I was at the Mars Service was to be an adjunct instructor for the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. Um, and in executing those duties, um, traditionally I would train out in the field. I wouldn't train at the academy itself, but I would train within the local federal district. So state hmm. and locals, other federal agents, things of that sort. Hmm. And And... Did you have any kind of a, what happened when you transitioned from law enforcement to the private sector? Was there a culture shock or did you move into it smoothly? How did, or seamlessly? How did that happen? Well, before I transitioned, I, I kind of started to do my own investigation to find out what the business was all about. So, of course, one of the things I turned to was Google and I started trying to find out who the top, you know, investigators around the country were and started reading their blogs. Um, one of the big inspirations when I was thinking about getting into the business was Brian Willingham's blog. And I would do a lot of reading on his website about the business and then kind of follow the other PIs that had followed him to try to learn a little bit more about the business end of things. Because coming into the private sector, I knew one of the big challenges was going to be not necessarily how to do the job, but how to actually run a business. Because um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of really great businesses out there that have good services, good products, but unfortunately they fail because they don't know how to run a business. So I kind of saw that as a challenge that I needed to overcome. Yeah, boy, you're, sure, you're so right. You know, uh, there's, there's so many facets. You can be a great investigator, but if you can't write reports it falls flat. If you can't run a business, it falls flat. So uh, it, it really is an interesting dynamic and combination of skills. Exactly. And that, you know, that, but the challenge is, you know, it, it's something that helps you grow because, you know, life is about stretching your limitations and figuring out how do I get to the next place. And I think as a private investigator, that's, you know, one of the best things that our job has to offer is the, the daily challenge of running a business. That's true. What was your biggest surprise, Steve? Um, probably my biggest surprise coming into the industry was the general, the general public doesn't have a good idea specifically as to what we do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when I'm talking to friends or neighbors, you know, the first thing that comes up to them comes to their mind is, oh, you're, you're out spying on someone's life tonight. Right. That's exactly right. You know, and while there are investigators that do specialize in domestic investigations, there's so many different areas of private investigation that 
you know, a large percentage of our community probably rarely even take domestic cases depending upon their focus. So it was kind of, that was a big shock to me because I, having grown up around private investigators in my neighborhood and having worked with them mm-hmm. in law enforcement, mm-hmm. I, I felt like I had a pretty good idea what they did and thought the public did too, but they didn't. Well, and that's actually exactly the reason I started this show eight years ago is because I wanted to destroy that um, that uh, lack of education and the myth that exists surrounding investigations, private investigations. So, um, so I'm interested, though. You said you worked as while you were in the marshal's office. You worked with private investigators. In what kind of a role? Um, when I was working with the fugitive unit, we would often get calls from different private investigators that were looking for fugitives um, as part of their work. And a lot of times they would share tips or provide information that would help lead to arrests of major fugitives that we were working. And so I kind of developed some relationships with these folks over time because what always interested me was how they were able to obtain information that maybe federal law enforcement couldn't obtain. And started network we, networking with them a lot to learn about things like open source intelligence, public records, because those are really two areas that a lot of law enforcement officers don't really get the touch on in their career or possibly don't know that the information's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so just over time, just started, you know, developing relationships with them, invited them to some of our training sessions that we would hold locally and, you know, just sharing information. I'm glad to hear that because, you know, the, the myth is that, of course, law enforcement refuses to kind of disparage as private investigators and refuses to work with them. So it's, it's nice to hear that that isn't actually a reality. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it really just kind of depends upon the officers on the street and the agency. I, I know in my current capacity, I've had some agencies, you know, just flat out refuse to cooperate with an investigation provide records in a timely, you know, manner. But then I've had other other agencies that have been great to work with. They pass along information and, you know, everybody, because in the end, everyone's just trying to get the same job done. And that's to make sure that, you know, justice is served on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, that's for sure. And, you know, it probably also depends very much on how the private investigator represents themselves and how they approach the agency as well. That's exactly correct. I know in my personal day when I wake up, I try to think of myself as an individual conducting a legitimate business. So I get up, I put dress clothes on, and I try to represent myself in a positive light when I'm out in the field. Because I think there's a misconception that a lot of private investigators are running around in tank tops and cut off jean shorts, you know, and maybe are pursuing unethical investigative techniques, but I, I think in private investigation, you know, it's, it's a very professional, serious uh, profession, and there's some top-notch investigators out there that, you know, are just the world-class in what they do. It, absolutely right, and, you know, um, and what I think the general public doesn't know, and maybe even some private investigators don't know, that anything we do can involve a legal process. Even if it doesn't start out that way, it could end up that way. So you've got to cross the T's and dot the I's and maintain a professional demeanor or it's, it's going to affect the client or the case. 
That's correct. And yeah. in, in, in even dealing with your clients, I one we deal primarily with uh, attorneys in our cases. And I can't tell you how many times when I go to an attorney's office, the first thing they say is, oh, you, you showed up looking professional. And my <laughs> response usually is, well, I represent you in your office, so right. you know, I, oh. I'm going to conduct myself as such. That's discouraging. <laughs> That's very discouraging. We're going to take a quick break, Steve. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm back with um, my guest, Steve Mason from Arizona, a licensed private investigator there. Today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, investigative timelines, actually applicable to criminal defense, but it's really applicable to many types of investigations. So, Steve, why don't you take it from there and talk to us about uh, what your viewpoint is on this? Sure. So, you know, like many things, uh, you need a lot of different tools to get the job done. And one tool that's worked very well for me in my career has been utilizing investigative timelines, um, especially in my job as a PI now. Um, I do a lot of criminal defense cases, and inherently I get copied in on discovery as it gets turned over to the defense. And what I found is usually these 
discovery packets can contain hundreds to thousands of pages of information, and they're mm-hmm. not necessarily in any order. So we, we've been successful in using timelines to try to put order to that information. And you're talking about the timeline of what, when the case began to the point where you get the discovery. Exactly. Is that right? A lot of times yeah. as I'm reading okay. through discovery, it, it comes through out of order. So as I read discovery, I create a living timeline and I add facts, persons, places, events to the timeline as I go through the documents. That, so when I'm done, I mm-hmm. have a, kind of a complete visual picture as to how the case looks. Right. It's very valuable because you, you pick up things, don't you, that you wouldn't, may not have picked up otherwise. Yeah, that, that's exactly correct. Um, one of the big uses I've found is finding out where the gaps in the cases are and figuring out you know, how to direct a case to fill those gaps, to find that missing witness, or to go canvas that area where there's a large gap in the case. Well, and let me just, for our audience, let me just address that many times um, you get what we call discovery. Discovery is the police reports and anything the district attorney has collected on the case. And often the each police officer may have a chronologically uh, formed report, but there may be many police officers who have the same chronology. So what Steve's talking about is taking that all those reports and put it putting that into a timeline. So you have you don't have ten different reports following the same timeline. You have one report that lists everything. Is am I correct with that? That's correct. Okay. So so what kinds of things have you uncovered because you did something like that? Um, well, currently I'm working on a federal case. And as you talked about, there's a lot of different agencies involved in this current case that I'm working on. There's about eight agencies involved, two federal agencies and two state agencies and a bunch of little local agencies all investigating the same individual. And when the U.S. Attorney's Office moved to prosecute the case, they collected all the reports and intelligence from all these agencies and just kind of turned it over out of order. And so Mm -hmm. in this case, what we're actually finding is that these agencies had been in communication with each other, but during some of the motion to suppress hearings, they had failed to disclose that to the court when specifically asked by defense counsel. Um, So what we've been able to uncover is that these agencies, you know, were communicating during certain periods of time that led to pretextual traffic stops. Although during the motion to suppress hearings, they testified that they were just routine traffic stops and they weren't based on any pretextual circumstances. Hmm. So that's so that's been a great tool for us to you know possibly discredit some of the prosecution's witnesses as the case goes forward. And so talk about how that affects a case because the uh, implication is, of course, the officers are colluding, or the uh, ATF or. FBI or whoever it is, agencies involved, they're uh, working with each other. Um, so I would think most people would think that would be not, uh, not would be the right thing to do. Why not? Why shouldn't uh, officers get together to 
arrest or stop somebody when they think they may be a suspect? Well, there's there's no problem, you know, with law enforcement agencies working together and sharing information. Um, but where it comes into play is when the officers share information, and as part of that sharing, they per, they don't turn over to defense what was known, what their actions were, and the real reasons for for some of these traffic stops in this particular case. Um, and you know, when the officers get questioned on the stand and they they tell the court that, hey, you know, this was an ordinary traffic stop. It wasn't based on any prior known information. Then you start to wonder, well, what else hasn't the government turned over in their discovery? In this particular case, we found, you know, a multitude of reports and even search warrants for cell phones that included cell phone ping data that actually probably will help our case going forward to show that our defendant wasn't in some of the areas at the time that they claimed in the indictment. So okay, being able it, to get all that discovery and know who who was involved, what detectives were involved, you know, is crucial for our investigative process. And Steve, why don't you explain what ping data is? Sure. So on cellular devices, they emit electronic signals. Usually those electronic signals will go to a cell tower that services the area where the device is at. And law enforcement has a process where they can apply for a search warrant to be able to locate that device either through GPS data, through physically tracking the device with advanced equipment or what have you. And it provides the investigator with a general location and in some cases a very specific location as to where that device is currently located. Mm-hmm. And so the down the um, the results of not turning over discovery or t- turning over to activities from law enforcement like like this tell me how that plays out in your case. Sure. So usually um, what I would do is when they turn over the ping data I would do my own analysis of that ping data to see if the data correlates with what's being charged or alleged. Um, a lot of times, the, they have a great case against the device that they're tracking, but part of that is proving that the individual involved was using that device at the time that they were tracking it. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times, the device will actually show that the defendant wasn't in the area alleged and therefore, you know, provides an alibi as to could he or she have committed the offense. Um, also a big part of it is obtaining the, the applications for those devices. Cause there's a lot of information that's put before the court to prove probable cause. So a lot of times confidential informants will be referenced investigative steps. And that's always a good source of information for us as private investigators to understand how the case was built. Yeah, and you know, um, people who become confidential informants often think that their confidentiality will be maintained, and the reality is it may be disclosed ultimately in a case. Correct. And, and you know, uh, as private <laughs> investigators, that's important for us because yes. a lot of these cases start with these informants. Mm-hmm. And so, th- this this sounds like it might be a drug trafficking case you're use- working on. 
particular case, it's a sex trafficking case of sex human trafficking, trafficking yeah. with minors. Yeah. Which, of course, uh, brings up all kinds of reactions of people when you're talking about working on a sex trafficking case. Correct. I, I know when I was initially assigned this case myself, uh, the attorney that I worked with a long time ago, I had told him that I would you know, not be willing to work on any cases involving children or child pornography just because the the nature of those offenses didn't sit well with me as far as reviewing the evidence and putting those thoughts in my head. But as time went on, you know, you, you come to learn that everybody's entitled to a proper defense and to be heard, you know, their day in court. You know, it's our constitutional right, frankly, to uh, have due process and have somebody represent us and all of all of the things that go into uh Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments, and and so why do you think, Steve? Um, it always puzzles me why the prosecution wants to hide the ball. Now, whether it doesn't matter whether it's a U.S. attorney or a state attorney, um, they like to withhold information, and it drives me crazy because I think it should be a level playing field. Unfortunately that does occur in our justice system. My experience has been a lot of the times when the attorneys are withholding information, it more or less goes back to the specific law enforcement agency not making the attorneys aware that this information exists or certain activities were done. Um, But obviously there is a lot of cases of prosecutorial misconduct out there. I think the the drive of the attorneys to win cases at all costs, you know, is very important to them. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of pressure on them to quote unquote, do their job. And, you know, there's, there's no such thing as a perfect case. Anytime I see a perfect case, I start to wonder what's really going on because, you know, investigations inherently are not perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's done. Done by humans can't be perfect. Well, it's it's kind of interesting because I you're you're right. Sometimes the uh, the U.S. attorney or the state attorney doesn't know that these other reports existed from an agency. Nevertheless, they're still responsible. That's correct. You know, for disclosing them. But um, but I know that, and I won't name the agency. But I know there's one agency that actually marks their reports. Um, with the code so they don't get turned over to, to the defense. Mm. And I ran into that by accident because the representative from that particular agency testified and he was asked a specific question and he disclosed the information. And um, that was a big aha moment for me that uh, an agency would actually code information, code reports so they wouldn't be turned over. It was very disturbing. Right, and as as you get involved in other types of cases that are more high profile or maybe they involve an intelligence source, you start to run into that. Um, I did a lot of work when I was with the federal government down in Guantanamo Bay, and you would see that a lot where certain reports would just never make the light of day to the defense, you know, because they had a certain intelligence value and there was 
some, you know, weird public records law out there that didn't mandate the disclosure. Um, you know, something that comes to my mind even along this line is with some of the uh, felon in possession cases that you'll see come through the federal system mm-hmm. and how the ATF traces ammunition, their own manuals aren't discoverable that they use to actually make these identifications. And that's something that's always kind of frustrated me as a private investigator because there's no way to verify that the information was properly referenced when they make their findings. That's interesting. I didn't know that. That's an interesting uh, observation. Um, and, there's, and there's no way to get these manuals. No. In fact, they're labeled as top secret information and you're stuck with relying upon the you know, testimony of the ATF officer making the identification that he or she properly utilized the reference material and made, you know, whatever findings they made. And to me, that's a, that's a big part of those cases because they have to show that interstate commerce nexus to be prosecuted federally. And when there's no process in place for the defense to verify that Mm -hmm. the information obtained is true and correct, it, there's no checks and balances on the ATF at that point. Well, it's no different than uh, having the defense run a ballistics check on bull- the bullets and weapons found at the scene, or the casings and uh, weapon found at the scene, uh, to check to see that the prosecutor's expert did their job. It's no different. Right, exactly. It's frustrating. <laughs> it's very frustrating. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, the, the more you get involved on the private side, you start to see some of the frustrations that weren't immediately apparent when you're working on the side of the government. And you start to see the need for some reform, you know, in these areas. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it's interesting. I mean... It, thank our lucky stars that we have a checks and balance system in the United States. It doesn't always work, and there are a lot of people in prison that shouldn't be, but it does have a check and balance. And years ago, uh, I was speaking, I'm talking to an investigator in Russia, and she was very, very proud of the fact that she had worked for both of both the defense and the prosecution because they have one investigator, and not one of her cases had been acquitted. <laughs> wow! <laughs> but and she was quite proud of that. That uh, she got there were convictions on every single one of them that she investigated. And there was over five hundred. So uh, we do have an, a unique system here that we're very proud of. But on the other hand, it has its problems. Exactly. You know, and that's that's the important role that as private investigators we need to understand that. We, we play a vital role in making sure that those checks and balances work by thoroughly investigating our cases, reporting facts, and understanding that our work has, you know, real-world consequences. And, you know, sometimes we're someone's last lifeline with discovering hidden pieces of information. Right, exactly. Now, you, what kind of, uh, do you have computer systems that uh, you use to to help you with the timeline? Yes. Um, Currently, I use two. I use a program called SmartDraw, and then I will also use Microsoft Excel. 
Um, traditionally, I'll start my timeline work in Excel uh, just because it's a little easier to keep neat and organized and keep the flow of reading when you get those 5,000-page discovery packets. But then right. I'll take that information in Excel and I'll go back and I'll create more of a, uh, a visual rep- representation in SmartDraw uh, of the timeline. Okay. I, I want to get into this um, a little more. Um, we're going to need to take a break in a couple of minutes, but I want to get into this a little bit more. So when you do um, the Excel spreadsheet, you're just going through the police reports and logging in uh, the event and the time and probably whatever officers involved. What all, all do you put in that? So, you know, you can design your Excel spreadsheet based upon the type of case you're working. But in general, you're going to want to include dates, times, places, and people. And, mm-hmm. you know, the real advantage with Excel is as you create an Excel spreadsheet, you can go back and filter any of these columns to start to find right. connections, to find out dates and times that certain officers or witnesses were involved, the locations they were at, possible evidence. And also the neat thing with Excel is you can link, you know, you can hyperlink in different documents that you collect along the way so you know the source of your information and it becomes real handy to use as a visual tool when you go to talk with your client and explain some of your findings and how you came about connecting the dots. Okay, let's come back to that because I, I want to explore that some more. We're going to take a quick break with Steve Mason. We'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Hi, private investigator Steve Mason and I are discussing uh, using timelines in your cases. And we were just talking about Excel. So, Steve, when you set up, um, you're working on a criminal case, just to give people a background in case they just logged in. Um, you're setting up an Excel spreadsheet with your the discovery you received on your case. And what fields are you putting in so you, you can properly filter them if you need to? So at a minimum, I'll put in date, time, people, or persons, location, events, and then maybe depending upon what I'm working on, I'll have a column for evidence. Um, That way, as I build the Excel sheet and it grows to 100 plus rows or what have you, you can go back and filter those rows by... You know, you can select a date, a time, a location, a person, and you can kind of start to see the different events and dates that those people mm-hmm. are involved or the evidence that pertains to them. Right. And the nice thing about Excel is you can always insert fields and add more fields in and if you need them. Correct. And you can insert, you know, different type of clip art. Uh, you go under the insert function at the very bottom, at least on my Mac, there's an option for hyperlink. So you can click on that and put in certain documents that you've collected or websites you've visited, put those in the fields. You know, so as you go back and you look at the case some months from now, you'll, you'll remember what the source document was for the, for the entry. Okay. So you could, uh, say you had, uh, a report of witness A, you could link that report to your Excel spreadsheet? Exactly. So what I would do is I scan in all the discovery if it hasn't come to me electronically, and I'll create PDFs Mm -hmm. for each report, and then I can go in under the insert function, scroll down to hyperlink, and it'll give me the option to search for documents on my computer. So I'll select the PDF document for that report, and then it'll hyperlink that report into the cell. Fun. This is great. I've never done this. This is this is good information. So, uh, what else can you add in? Um, can you do? Can you also link videos and um, photographs and all kinds of things like that? Yeah. So you could. You could take any photographs, scan those into your computer if you don't have them electronically. I haven't tried videos myself, but I've seen presentations from other people where they've had videos connected to their Excel spreadsheets. I would imagine mm-hmm. pretty much anything that you could save to your computer, you could hyperlink into your document. This is good because, you know, I don't know whether you've done this, but I've, over the years, I've never really been able to find a um, commercial program, even if it's designed for criminal defense, that works for the cases that I work on because they're so detailed. Right. And and that's the beauty with Excel. Is that that the case with you as well? Yeah. um, and, And that's kind of the beauty with Excel is it's very customizable, you know, you can grow the document as large as you probably would need it to be. 
Um, it's easy to cut and paste stuff out of it, export it, share it with others, you know, which is always important when you're working with others in your field to be able to share data, right? Because there's a lot of great programs out there, but if the individuals you're working with can't view the data that you save, then it's, you know, only good for you. Um, and I think most people have a general understanding of how to navigate around Excel, so there's not a large learning curve if you send your data to an attorney mm-hmm. who maybe isn't real familiar. Yeah, that's true. And you said you use SmartDraw. How do you use SmartDraw? Primarily right now all I'm using SmartDraw for is to create more of a visual representation of my timelines, and then I'll also use it for kind of some general crime scene sketching. Uh, It has a lot of capabilities in it to pull up templates for intersections, various types of structures like homes and stuff, and you can draw crime scene maps within SmartDraw. And the nice thing is you can export it to any of the Microsoft products like Word, Excel. You can save them as a PDF. You can share them with others if they need to add their portion of the investigation into the graphic. But it just creates this real nice visual representation of your data. Okay, so I'm trying to understand, I'm I'm trying to visualize that, Steve. <laughs> so, How do you, so with SmartDraw, do you to, picture okay. kind of a traditional timeline where you have uh, you have a footer, you know, that maybe has time like 1 p.m., 2 p.m., 3 p.m., 4 p.m., and so on. Then you can go in and add mm-hmm. arrows going down to the time with bubbles at the top of the arrows, so you can put in you know whatever information or pictures that you want to represent. And as you build this, it just it keeps making the timeline larger. So, um, so like a good example is I was working a case of uh, a criminal case where an arrest had occurred, and there was a question as to whether or not this Terry stop had evolved into physical custody for the purposes of Miranda. And so in obtaining the surveillance tape from the, from the casino, I went back and I created a timeline minute by minute of what the tape showed and exactly when the officers had made contact, you know, when they engaged in questioning and kind of what was occurring as it went along. And at the end, it created this nice visual representation that I used to interview the officer in the case to show exactly what was happening when and where um, because SmartDraw just takes that data and it creates kind of your classical timeline. So a good way to think about it is maybe back in you know the early days when we were attending grade school and you'd open the history book, you'd see the timeline of you know maybe the earth or history. And it, SmartDraw just it does that. It creates that traditional timeline picture that we've come to associate with timelines. So it's a lineal representation which each, each item plugged in. So have you ever exactly. used uh, Time Time Map? I'm sorry? The program called Time Map? A program called Time Map. Um, I'm not familiar with like that, that program. The, the only one I've used is is the Smart Draw program. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to check that out. Now, in your article, Steve, you said you, uh, you rep recommended also uh, Visio and RF Flow. Can you talk about those a little bit? Sure. Um, I'm not as familiar with those programs. 
but those are programs a lot of uh, different law enforcement agencies utilize to create their timelines and different types of uh, graphics. Um, I've been to several presentations where timelines have been discussed, and those have kind of been alternate vendor options for SmartDraw. Um, my understanding is Visio mm-hmm. is very similar to SmartDraw, but a more advanced version of it. Um, I primarily use SmartDraw just because I'm not as computer savvy, and it seems appears to be one of those programs that you can purchase and learn how to use after watching a 10-minute YouTube video. So um, that's kind of mm-hmm. the one I've navigated towards, but my understanding is the other ones are great options. And can you download Smart Law from the uh, Smart Draw? Smart Law, I just changed the name. Uh, Smart Draw from the internet and pay for it that way, or do you have to buy it uh, outright? So if you go to smartdraw.com, you can actually purchase a, a subscription. They, I believe they sell in increments of one year at a time. Um, comes out to a couple bucks a month. And then... To use the program, you can log in from any device, any location, access your data. They have an option where you can save your data to their cloud if you like. Um, I don't do that just because I like to be able to control my data, know where it's at at all times, but that's an option for those that are comfortable doing so. Um, yeah, so you and it's just a, it's a real great computer. program because it's, it's, it's cost-effective and easy to share. Okay. All right. So, um, and how are you sharing the, the information? So, so you have something in SmartDraw or Excel, and you want to share that with an attorney. How do you do that? In SmartDraw, when you go to save your timelines or your documents, it'll give you the option to save them as PDFs, JPEGs. You can create a link to your SmartDraw document if you have it saved in the cloud and share it very similar to Dropbox. Um, You can export it to a Word document and then share it as a doc file. They have various different options. Um, Usually what I'll do is I'll share the finished project product in a PDF document to the attorney, and then depending upon whether or not they Mm -hmm. want to utilize it, you know, as a visual aid at trial, then maybe we'll save in a different format for printing purposes. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the, the thing I liked, uh, the thing I liked is in your article, as you said, the timeline will really be documented. I think that's uh, that's the exciting part about doing it this way is because you can continue to add data as you find out new information, which you always do find out new information, and it makes it an easy method to do so. I like this. Yeah, it's it's a great kind of, like you said, it's a living document. You create it at the birth of the case through, you know, the death of the case. And what, what I found with the, the timelines, especially if you do a visual representation, it, you can convey ideas and thoughts that maybe would be difficult to explain when you're dealing with a more complex case, and it kind of breaks it down into a picture, you know, that most of us can look at and say, yeah, I understand how this relates to this and when this occurred. And uh, a lot of the attorneys that I've worked with, they, you know, use those documents as visual aids during trial to be able to show to juries, you know, where gaps exist and 
when certain things happened or, or even didn't happen, and it just creates this real mm-hmm. nice visual representation. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it's really hard to look at text all the time. So to have, you're right, have that visual representation, particularly for a jury and for a jury trying to understand a complex case and they're getting bombarded from, with the information from everybody and trying to, to weave that together into something they uh, can comprehend really helps with visual, really helps. Because they, you know, I, mean, I don't know about you, Steve, but I'm a visual person, so it does help me if I can see see that in in addition to seeing whatever is written. Right, and and that's the thing, you know, we all learn differently. And I think one of the keys to good attorneys is when they present their case, they'll they'll present the information in a variety of different manners, whether it's visual, audio, written, spoken. Because we all learn differently, we all take in information differently, and having those options available for a jury just allows them to, you know, understand exactly what's being presented. And I think what's really important, too, is that attorneys really depend on their investigative team to provide them the tools that they can present in court. The attorneys aren't, they're not trained on doing this, this kind of thing usually, some of them are, but not many. And uh, often they don't even have uh, support staff to do it. So it falls on the investigator to create visual representations, whether it be exhibits or whether it be computer programs or some way to process the information or organize the information so the attorney can use it because they get their information the same way we do, all mixed up. Right. And, you know, and that's, that's one of the ways you can become indispensable to your clients and be a merchant of wow is when you can provide your attorneys with solid information that's visually appealing and easy to understand and digest. And it's, you know, an attorney, they're great at litigation, <laughs> but, they're only, but they're only as good as the information right. that they have to use. That's right. I like that. A merchant of wows. I like that a lot. <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> one of my associates that I work with, Rich Robertson at R3 Investigations, I, I always use that term with him. I say, Rich, you're a merchant of wow. You've lived seven lifetimes. And you're right. He absolutely is. <laughs> I oh, love he, Rich. He's, he's been a great mentor so, of mine coming up. Uh, yeah, he's a yeah, he's a mentor to a lot of people. He does. He's amazing. He's really amazing. So, Steve, we're at the end of our hour. It's been an, a whole hour since we started. So, I, I really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. It's uh, really important nuts and bolts kind of information. And for the rest of you, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Steve Mason. It's TI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 